What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Burn It All Down. The quarantine continues. We are the feminist sports podcast you need. My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the author of the Power Plays newsletter. And joining me, because nobody has any excuse to miss podcast recordings anymore, (laughs) is the entire team. We have Dr. Amira Rose Davis, Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State. Hi, Amira. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. (laughs) (laughs) Jessica Luther, the co-author of the forthcoming book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. She is in Austin, Texas. Hey, Jess. Hey, Lynn. Hey, everyone. (laughs) Dr. Brenda Elsie the Associate Professor of History at Hofstra in New York. Hey, Bren. Hi. And of course, the freelance sports reporter extraordinaire, Shireen Ahmed in Toronto, Canada. Hi, Shireen. Good morning. Happy Easter. Yes. Happy holiday if you are celebrating anything. Lots of quarantine holidays going around. So this week, we've actually got plenty of stuff to discuss. We continue to wonder what we're going to talk about. And the sports world just fills us with things. We're going to talk about some of the desperate moves that sports entities are taking in order to attempt to get any sports off in the year 2020. Yes, we will be discussing Fight Island is Real. We also have an interview, Brendan Shireen chat with Dr. Jean Williams about the English game, the complete erasure of the women's game from this period piece and where the game is now. And we're going to talk WNBA draft, which is happening this coming Friday, live, virtually on ESPN. So really excited to get into it. Of course, we want to thank our patrons for as little as $2 a month at patreon.com slash burn it all down. You can support this podcast and make sure that it gets to continue rain, shine, quarantine or not. We're so appreciative of your support. First of all, We're going to play the game that everyone's playing. And then I would like to say that this game gets to be canceled after this. No more, nobody else gets to play this game because if one more person asks me to pick a room of who I want to be trapped with in the quarantine, I might explode. Anyways, I'm in a great mood. If you could pick two athletes to quarantine with, please, women, gender minorities only, who would they be? If you need to go to four, you can go to four because I know Shereen wanted to go to four. Okay. Let's go. Shireen, you start us off. Okay, so first of all, I'm going to quickly talk about the tragedy that was not recognizing women's hockey players and the ESPN athlete one. So my response to that was Hillary Knight. I realize she's not Canadian, but she played for Le Canadien. Also, Tobin Heath. I know you're like, what? You're not picking Christine Sinclair? Because I feel like Tobin and I have a connection. She doesn't know this yet, but I feel like this is important to say. But above all, two choices, Nadia Nadim. I love her. 
so much. She's also a physician or like in training, she's a medical student, which would be handy during this pandemic. And Maya Moore, because I could just learn from her and soak it all up. Also, cats, as many as possible. That sounds lively. That sounds fun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Brenda? Ooh, okay. This was a no-brainer kind of for me. Christiane Endler, because I want to score on her. And if we were quarantined, I'd have had 40,000 chances. So I could say, look, there, it's a bird. And she would look away and I would do that and I would tape it. And then I would look really awesome Um, for Miga because I want to get to know her because obvious. And Ashlyn Harris, how did you all Mm -hmm. not pick Ashlyn Harris? She's going to have all the booze. I haven't and, gone yet. Of course I'm picking her. And, okay. <laughs> She's going to have all the booze, all the fun, and all the cool Zoom parties. And if I get one more, Sue Bird, just to sort of follow her around. That sounds amazing. Yeah, I Ashlyn Harris is on my list too because booze and because she's so she's so attractive. Like she's so pretty. <laughs> her cheekbones, oh my goodness. Definitely have a crush. And then Venus Williams, because she's my favorite athlete, period. So I would want to be around her. And also, Mm -hmm. she's doing such a great job. Did you see her public service that she did about getting Mm -hmm. Grigor Dimitrov to show his abs? So when they were doing this workout (laughs) video together, they were doing a duel. Mm -hmm. And she, she forced him. So I feel like she would make sure that there is enough eye candy to go around, you know, and you know, she would, they would probably both make me work out and I need someone to yell at me to work out. So that would be good. Jess? Yeah, mine are Serena and Venus yeah. because, like, even if I wasn't included, I would just like to watch them. I'd like to be a fly <laughs> on the wall when the two of them are together. And I just feel like that alone would be just very fun in isolation. So, yeah, I feel like that's a super obvious pick for me, but that's what but I'm it's going very with. good. And Amira? Yeah, I just picked like really easy, basic things with uh, Sue and Rapino, just because I feel like I'm quarantined with them because I watch all of their IG lives, which they do on a weekly basis. And they've got ginger beer that they've flown in from this great mom and pop kind of alcohol shop back in Washington. And their stories, particularly as Megan gets increasingly drunk, are the funniest things. I really appreciated the one where like early on in their relationship, they went to Hawaii together and it was the first time that (laughs) Megan was really hanging out with Diana Taurasi and Penny and Sue and she got way too drunk and kept throwing up and passing out and Sue turning to Diana and Penny saying, she's little, it's okay, she's just little. (laughs) And she followed it up by saying, you can't ever drink with UConn players, like it's just just what it is. (laughs) So yeah. Yeah, that was my favorite too. And the theme of all of these is that Megan cannot hold her alcohol nearly as well as Sue. Because Sue just <laughs> is pretty much the same the whole time. <laughs> and Megan like, gets to the point where she's like telling like the mom who was like, oh, my daughter loves you. And Megan was like, like, like she might be gay. <laughs> and she's like, Megan. Oh, gosh. That was so good. <laughs> all right. That game is officially ended. We won. Well, desperate times call for desperate measures, according to many in the sports world. <laughs> Jess, what are the primarily men in charge of sports saying these days about when sports can return and how? Yeah. 
Well, <laughs> any minute now, I think, is what they all <laughs> want us to believe. So I want to say, I want to start this by actual sports that are returning. We record, of course, on Sunday during the day. By the time you listen to this, this will have already aired. But ESPN is doing its first live sports in many weeks here. What they are calling the NBA Horse Tournament, even though it is the NBA and WNBA Horse Tournament. Thank you very Mm -hmm. much. For those that don't know, horse is a game where one person starts and they do whatever shot from whatever place. The next person has to do the same shot. If you miss, you get an H and then an O and then an R until you spell horse and you lose. So first round matchups are Trey Young versus Chauncey Billups, Tamika Catchings against Mike Conley Jr., Zach Levine versus Paul Pierce, and Chris Paul versus Allie Quigley. My money is on Quigley. The semifinals and finals are air on Thursday evening, April 16th on ESPN. So that is how desperate ESPN has gotten. They're going to air an, a horse tournament, but I'm pretty jazzed that they're doing it. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I, my understanding is everyone will be in an isolated place. Like, I don't know if they're all going to be... I don't know if ESPN's in a camera crew there. It'll be interesting to see the quality of how this all works. But anyway, you know, sports around the world are trying to get back on track. One thing I wanted to mention is in Taiwan, their baseball season is starting up. And it's going to be played without real-life human fans in the stands. But according to the AFP, quote, On Saturday, Rakuten Monkeys unveiled robotic mannequins and cardboard (laughs) cutouts of fans dressed in home colors and caps. Some of the robots even banged on drums from the empty stands. So that's what they're doing for fans now. But of course, a lot of these ideas are not great. And also (laughs) super vague. So like Adam Schefter who seems to exist just to serve as a mouthpiece for powerful people in football. Mm. This week, he tweeted, quote, Speaking to people in and around college football this week, there is strong conviction, and he put that in quotes, strong conviction, there will be college football this season. Uncertainty about when, multiple scenarios being debated, but they sound certain there will still be college football this season. <laughs> that is, I don't, it's so dumb like are these people public health officials or infectious disease specialists because just wanting football to exist doesn't make it safe or smart or good we'll be talking about this more in a little bit but major league baseball really wants to be the first league back and they are proposing some wild stuff including creating basically like a giant bubble in arizona where everyone involved will be constantly monitored and tested i guess the players will live apart from their families i'm not really sure but they'll do this for months so they can have a season So everyone, I guess, enjoy playing baseball in 100 degree heat. I don't know. But I just want to say before I pass this on, the reality is that sports are not coming back anytime soon and everyone needs to chill the fuck out. And I know that that sucks, but it it just is. Stephanie Epstein at Sports Illustrated spoke to multiple medical experts about the return of sports. And it's grim, y'all. One expert she spoke with said sports will return when we get a vaccine. And that's 12 to 18 months away. Mm -hmm. He pointed Mm -hmm. out that quarantine sports leagues are nearly impossible to maintain. And as soon as one person in any bubble tests positive, they'll have to stop everything for 14 days at the least. But still, people think they're going to do this, I guess. So I don't know. Amira... What desperate sports story have you been paying attention to? Yeah, well, you know, I talked uh, a little bit before about the big three, big brother mashup and quarantine that. And so I thought that might be the most ridiculous thing. But then Dana White (laughs) said, hold my beer. (laughs) And this is an ongoing saga. We've been covering this on Burn It All Down for about four weeks now. If you remember, on episode 150, I talked about what all the other sports closed 
in mid-March, and this was like March 15th, we talked about how Dana White was still like, I've spoken directly to Trump and Pence, and they've assured me that I can keep going, particularly around UFC 249. And then uh, two weeks ago in episode 152, Shireen also torched Dana White for his continued assurance that this (laughs) fight was going to happen. And this week, he kept saying that this had now been moved three times. His latest place of having it was in a casino that was on tribal land. So it was a sovereign space that wasn't going to be able to like, so California (laughs) basically couldn't shut them down because it was on sovereign space. But they were like, how are you going to even claim that operating casino to have a fight is essential like you're so dumb and so because he was worried that they were going to try to find a way to shut him down he announced plans (laughs) he said he was close to a deal finalizing a deal that would buy a private island (laughs) to have (laughs) this is fight island this is the i it's the i i can't even i Fight Island. (laughs) He literally was going to buy a private island. Like, it's not enough that you're moving into sovereign tribal land as a way to circumvent U.S. Like, it's just like all of it is disgusting. This is just like sporting colonialism. Like, how can I buy up land and like occupy this space to hold something that's going to get people sick? That's not well advised at all just because like your own like the levels of like he's so preposterous. But what's wild is that at the beginning of this week, despite the fact that he was going on with this, while he had fighters pulling out because they had deaths in their family due to COVID, like this is this mm. is where we were. But luckily, adults in the room finally stood up and told him to stand down. And when this was first announced, he basically said, it's out of my hands. It is going to be canceled. And it was very clear that somebody had pulled the plug on it. We didn't know who. And now we know that he got the call from the, he said, the highest level you can go at Disney, the highest level is ESPN. And basically they said, don't do this next week. And they've now finally postponed all of the other UFC events are postponed indefinitely. The fact that it had to take this amount of time, basically four weeks of him doing all sorts of things, moving the fight, going to sovereign land, buying a damn private (laughs) island to try to get this on before people finally were able to say, sit down, shut the fuck up. It's not happening. And so luckily it's not happening here, but just because we know how wild he is, I wouldn't be surprised if we didn't see another kind of preposterous idea coming out of Dana White and the UFC to continue to truck along in some way. Yeah, he's not going to be deterred because it's just all about He's willing to spend so much money to try and make some money. And I just keep being like, why don't you spend that money on the athletes that can't get paid right now, right? Like, just make them secure for a while. Calm the fuck down. But, of course, that's not a money-making venture in the short term for him. So that's out the window. You know, it's a lot like this baseball stuff in Arizona. It just keeps... I was listening to the ESPN Daily podcast with Mina Mm. Kimes earlier Mm. this week, and they had an episode on it, which was really good. But the reporter, the ESPN reporter she was talking with was like, very gung ho about the idea. (laughs) And like, very much like the players are excited about it. This is how they can make money right now. The players want to make money. Nobody wants to lose a season. 
And it just all seems so short-sighted, right? And so selfish. Um, Because if you think about this Arizona bubble, like not only is it a logistical nightmare for the players, I mean, they're why, you know, some of them have wives that are pregnant this summer and could get birth. And, you know, do they keep all the kids there? Like, how do they do all that? But you also think of all the people you have do you make all of their hotel staff quarantine with them, right? So that, right. you know, the hotel staff can't see their family and the drivers can't see their family and the television people can't see their families. And I mean, you have to have entire ecosystems like quarantine. And there's this other idea now being floated from the MLB, which I they call these trial balloons where these kind of like rumors spark up and then they see how the public reacts to them. So the newest one is that they might do – Everything at the team training, spring training, that's the word I was looking for, sites in Florida and Arizona. So make two basically completely new conferences based on who's in Florida and who's in Arizona for their typical spring training Mm -hmm. and do the games there. But that's not in – they're not in a complete bubble there because, like, you're still traveling all around Florida. And we know that Florida is taking this very seriously. So, um, (laughs) you know, (laughs) there's no lapses in the Florida preparation around COVID-19. So, you know, it's just a mess. And it just it makes me so sad because I wish that we could spend all of this money and all of these resources and all of this power towards helping society as a whole. And while I want sports back and I want these athletes to get paid, there's got to be a better way to do this. Shereen? Well, I'm going to obviously talk a little bit about soccer and global football. And I did mention this a couple of weeks ago, I think last week's episode, What is Time Though? And about what we're looking forward to. And I did mention very briefly that soccer leagues in Tajikistan were starting again. And everyone's like, I wasn't actually kidding about that. Now, Tajikistan is a Central Asian country and one of the few countries in the world where there's no current case of COVID-19 right now. I mean, these figures and stats change probably daily, but there's not a lot of inflow and outflow into Tajikistan. So I think it's important to keep that in mind. Now, what's happening is it's not only Tajikistan, Belarus also is starting again, Burundi and Nicaragua. But just to focus on Tajikistan, they've started training already. And with three matches, which will begin today. And it's their domestic league. And it will be done behind closed doors, despite probably many other football federations around the world suspending their play. Now, in addition to that, okay, that's not the most shocking to me. What was was Bundesliga. Now, Bundesliga is, for those listeners that don't know, the premier football league in Germany. And they've already started to try to figure out how they're going to do this. Now, they're looking back to begin and resume in May. And what this would acquire would be, as Lindsay just mentioned, about the support staff, the camera people, the trainers, the the med staff. This, for Germany, would take about 200 people per team. And this is without fans. Now, what would happen is that they would test them regularly. They would also be living in isolation. And this is from a piece by Tarek Panja of the New York Times. And even though they're ahead of their curve and they're medical system seems to be handling the case, this is a huge risk. And I get it that it comes down to money. I Like, obviously, I get that. But 
to isolate in this way. And it's so reckless to me that people are being so careful while grocery shopping. You're going to engage and allow a contact sport in this way. It's really, it's really frustrating. So it's one in two top divisions in Bundesliga that have already returned to the practice field. They say they're observing health protocols, but that also shifts as we know more about what this disease is. We're still getting new information. I mean, initially when it came out, it was purportedly to only affect senior citizens. It's absolutely not true. And we've seen so many victims globally who are young with no underlying health issues anyway. And like, I find this to be very, very upsetting on many, many different levels. So that's happening. Premier League in England is unlikely to return. And, and if it does, it'll be in July, which affects the, the Women's Champion League is not restarting. And I mean, all we know that women and women's football leagues globally also get are considered as second-class citizens, uh, the players, the women generally. So we're not looking to that, which in a way is terrible to say, but I'm glad at least the women stay protected from this nonsense. Yeah, Bren? Well, I sort of have an odd out comment, which is just about another league, which is restarting, which is Vanuatu, which is an archipelago nation in the South Pacific that was colonized by France. And they have had, it's about just under 300,000 people. They have had no confirmed cases and have shut down and isolated entirely. So they've waited, you know, I, I think about three weeks or something like that. And this isn't to like make light of all the concerns that everyone has obviously expressed and I agree with wholeheartedly, but I am going to watch this league because <laughs> I am so desperate oh, <laughs> and I have, man. I have this really wonderful feeling. Like I have this like little tiny flicker of hope that there's going to be some amazing Vanuatu player out there right now. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be like the descent of every elite scout agent, obsessive football fan, like a lot of eyes are going to be on this country that just like has recovered from a cyclone whose entire national football team died in a plane crash last year. Oh my God. And I kind of am rooting for this to work out for them Mm -hmm. Um, because it seems like they've actually been really responsible about it. Again, I don't have total details but if anyone wants to watch Party with me, I'm really hoping that Fubo has it. And if not, they've said that they're going to stream it on their Facebook page. And I just have this like amazing hope that like everyone's going to be descending on this football federation. And I'm just like waiting for somebody to get, I don't know, that like amazing contract. And they have a women's league too. So I'm going to watch both basically Mm. if I can find it as much as I can. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah, it's funny. I wrote earlier this week for Power Plays, I was trying to think of how disproportionately all of this is going to impact women's sports and how in the race to get everything back, I can already see women's sports being just trampled all over, right? And completely forgotten about. And so my kind of makeshift solution was that whenever it is completely safe to start sports back, women should get a month long head start, right? Like there should be Mm -hmm. this magical month Mm -hmm. where it's just women's sports. And I know there's some logistical Mm -hmm. challenges depending on what league, but like just thinking about what a month where all this desperate energy to watch sports, right? (laughs) And to have sports back and to have sports journalism and for ESPN to be able to talk about things, if all of that energy could be focused just on women's sports for just a few weeks, like how much good that could do women's sports as Mm -hmm. a whole, right? 
And I, you know, I got really excited thinking about that. So that's kind of along the same lines of what you're saying with this, although, in a, you know, obviously much more practical way, but with this small island of just kind of thinking about how, and they have done things safely, it seems like, and it seems like they're not being too rash. And so, you know, maybe they can then capitalize because yeah, we all are incredibly hungry for sports. I just like, I think one of my hardest things is like when we're talking about the NCAA and NCAA sports, I think all of this is just reiterating something that we talk about on the show all the time, which is just the disproportionate amount of money and power that these college football head coaches get. And it really turns them into these godlike figures. And they drink all of that Kool-Aid. Like they believe that they are that powerful. And so you have these men who are the highest paid public employees, right, in the in the state coming out and saying that they can't, that football just will be back. Like, there's no way it won't be back. And it's just very clear. And I know Mira's going to talk about Mike Gundy later, so I'll, I'll leave that to her. But it's just very clear that these are not medical people and these are not experts on infectious disease and that it would just do me very much a lot of good if people would stop asking their opinion about the coronavirus. <laughs> Yes. Because I have enough rage bubbling up over people who are supposed to know about coronavirus every day. Like, I don't need fresh reminders of how much I hate all these people. But Jim Harbaugh is the latest example that I feel like we have to end on just to just think about these are not the people that should be making these decisions. So Jim Harbaugh, Michigan head coach football, was on the National Review podcast, which is just yeah, that's just a lot already. Um, <laughs> and his quote was, even now, as we all go through what we're going through with COVID-19, I see more people concerned about others, more prayerful. As I said, God has virtually stopped the world from spinning. I don't think it's coincidence. My personal feeling, living a faith-based life, this is a message or this is something that should be a time where we grow on our faith for reverence and respect for God. You see people taking more of a view of sanctity of life, and I hope that continues and not just in this time of crisis or pandemic. You might be thinking, okay, he's Christian, he's religious, he's just reflecting on religion right now. Like, that's okay. But then he says, and lastly, abortion. We talk about sanctity of life, yet we live in a society that aborts babies. There can't be anything more horrendous. So we went from chrono- coronavirus to abortion <laughs> in about three, four sentences. <laughs> so, and, um, and that, okay. Yeah. Go, go. I was just going to add, like, and sadly, like, Harbaugh is, like, not the only player that's been on this particular kick. Benjamin Watson, tight end, Boyce Watkins posted this image that was, like, the number of deaths due to coronavirus, and then it was, like, the number of aborted babies each year. And it was, like, you know, which Ugh. one are we mourning? And people rightfully were, like, oh, my goodness. And Ben Watson was, like, I know, 230,000 dead babies. And so I feel like this is, like, sadly a current that's running through some people of faith who are particularly politically oriented towards abortion politics. It's just, yeah. I I wish we could end on a more upbeat note, but (laughs) that's what it is. So I just wanted to end with a quote from a man named Zach Benny. He's a PhD in epidemiology. He wrote his dissertation on injuries in the NFL, and he now teaches at Emory. And he spoke to Stephanie Epstein for that Sports Illustrated article that I wrote about. And this is what he said to her, quote, if people just decide to let it burn in most areas and we do lose a couple million people, it'd probably be over by the fall. You'd have football. You'd also have two million dead people. And so I think that's really what we're talking about here. So 
for all the laughing at these men making these choices, like these are really real choices with really in- intense and big consequences for them. All right, next, Brenda and Shireen chat with Dr. Jean Williams. Hello, flamethrowers. I'm so excited today to have friend of the show and the amazing Dr. Jean Williams. She's the author of three books on football, starting with A Game for Rough Girls by Rutledge in 2003. Dr. Williams is a professor of sport at the University of Wolverhampton and a non-executive director of the Silverstone Motor Sport Experience. Dr. Williams is currently completing Britain's Olympic Women, again with Rutledge, and looks forward to meeting the first female president of FIFA soon. Welcome, Dr. Williams. Thank you very much. I'm honoured to be part of Burn It All Down, so that's really exciting. Thank you for inviting me. So, okay, I guess I should preface this by saying that Jean and I were on a call organised by the Football Scholars Forum with many, many people who have seen the new Netflix series, The English Game. And Professor Williams was very gracious (laughs) on said call. (laughs) And I wanted to start... By saying, so the English game supposedly takes place right around 1879. And as an historian, it immediately called to my mind your work on the beginnings of women's football, which stretch back at least until 1881, which you've documented. And I think it's fair to say we can imagine people, you know, women did play football before that. So I wanted to ask Eugene, what do you think it would have looked like if they actually read your work and integrated it? I can admit that I think the series is a pile of old pants. Um, <laughs> which <laughs> is just abysmal. And, you know, if they had read my work or any of the other academic work on it, because the guy's not an academic historian, and I don't think we should be snobbish about that, but we do take pains to get things right. There are a number of problems with it, historical accuracy, the depiction of women characters, which is appalling, even for a melodrama, and just its overall appreciation of early football history. I just wanted to ask, was there nothing about it that you liked at all? The reviews in the UK were that this was going to be Downton Abbey for boys, Um, And, you know, it certainly wasn't even Downton Abbey for people who like football. And I spoke a little bit about that with Brenda in terms of, because my other background, I started out as an English major. I I actually thought I was going to be a Toni Morrison scholar. So what interests me is if they're not going for historical accuracy and and authenticity, what is the narrative arc of this series? Having said Mm -hmm. that it's melodrama and it's, you know, a TV series, it's not a film. What is the narrative arc and why have they therefore used the characters in the way that they have? And for people who haven't seen it, we might want to just mention, basically, it's the narrative arc has to do with the struggle between the very elite men that had started and created the FA and kind of working class factory workers in different parts of England. And it gives the Scottish game its due credit. I think that's the fastest I can say. And then it involves kind of personal love and romance with women who are obsessed with maternity and um, <laughs> and, and, um, and very Victorian, I guess. 
in our stereotype of whatever that means more than probably what it really embodies. So just really quickly then, one of the things that strikes me is that a lot of the conversation around the English game has been obsessed about the origins of football and who gets credit for it and who doesn't. Yeah. And, you know, being a Latin Americanist, I feel just fine saying it might have been invented in X and it's perfected in South America. But I (laughs) sensed a real need to establish that. So I wanted to ask you, Jean, what is that about? Is that about British masculinity? Is that about regionalism or nationhood? Is that about colonialism? Yeah. <laughs> what is the thing where what, like there's this what is thing? thing? Yeah. Well, we get this an awful lot in what I do professionally, which is that we deconstruct myths of origin. And you will know this yourself from the kind of myths of the invention of baseball and so on on and so forth, the field of dreams and all of that. So there are lots of these myths of origin within British sport. There is still a statue up, for instance, at rugby school, which is not too far away from where I live, saying that a young boy picked up the ball and ran with it and thereby invented rugby. And we know that not to be true. But nevertheless, the school still does tours in which they retell this myth. And it's an origin myth. And people need a kind of simple, clear answer as to when things started. And people generally don't like complexity. I think in both US, Canada and UK context that we can see in our recent elections that politicians mistrust experts until there's a pandemic and then they can't wait to trail out the experts and say that they're looking at the evidence. So one of the things that I think about the English game is that it's a Brexit Britain series. It's about saying, you know, this is something that we gave the world And yet it won't surprise you that the historian that they used on this was Scottish. So there's a strongly Scottish story that actually the British may have invented various rules, but the game as it's truly played in the logic of the series was given by the Scottish professors. Mm -hmm. And we do know that obviously there's a strong history of the Anglos coming down from Scotland and being paid to play within the UK context. Mm. But... That's, again, a very simplistic characterization because the work of Peter Swain, Graham Curry, and another of other academics has shown that actually, if you think of that switch over between folk football, which is the kind of writer's game that everybody knows was played in the UK before the rules were developed in Sheffield, Cambridge, the FA rules, and, and a number of other places, there were lots and lots of games like football may have been amalgams of football and rugby that were played by the masses. So again, this idea that football was a game for aristocrats, they gave it rules and laws, and then it was somehow taken by the working class to be their own. The whole premise of the series is problematic. I have a question, and I really love this juxtaposition that you're talking about of sort of this bastardization, the depiction that football was bastardized and taken over by the working class. So the the series also attempts to touch on this class struggle that was clearly happening, but like you said, in a very simplistic way. And in terms of simplifying all these narratives within football, what was happening, Jean, for those that do not know or listeners that aren't familiar with women's football history, what was happening in 1870s with women in football in England? 
Well, the earliest games that we've got recorded are in 1881. And again, some of, I'm currently engaged in very interesting conversations with local historians, again, mainly based in Scotland, who are trying to demonstrate that these games were sort of invented by the Scottish. And the historians who are looking into this have sometimes also claimed that the names, like Lily Sinclair, who scores one of the first goals, is similar to an actress of that name who was touring locally. And he has said that these were games were actually acted out rather than proper football matches. Now, mm. no, you've ever tried to rehearse a football match and it's one <laughs> that makes it really challenging um, to picked on screen is that football is spontaneous and it's really difficult to rehearse. So I think that that is a kind of misreading of, of the evidence. But we do know that there were women's football matches at about this time because it was actually Blackburn Olympic who beat Old Etonians in 1883. So one of the things the series has done is, is compacted time. Mm-hmm. And, of course, Fergie Suter never played for, for Olympic. He played for Rovers. So Rovers, yeah. yeah. Yeah, they're playing fast and loose with the details. One of the things that I would point out, though, quite aside from how much women's football was, the 1870s are pretty assertive for women generally in sports. So more and more women owning cycles. You get early tennis and certainly croquet competitions and sport and the outdoor life becomes really fashionable. And again, particularly amongst the women of the upper classes who would be, you know, riding to hounds and those kinds of activities taking part in blood sports. And that wasn't depicted anywhere in this series. There was no outdoor life, you know, other than, well, nothing really. I can't remember them showing anything of that nature in this series. So it's really interesting. And that's what I want our listeners to hear from you was that what was actually happening at this time? Because we have no idea other than like Brenda very specifically said, there was class struggle and we see that conflict and women involved in that, particularly a Fergus a Suter's uh, love interest, the fictional Martha, and how she's involved in in class struggle and stuff like that. But you know, other than that, there's no depiction of athleticism of women anywhere. No, and I mean, interestingly, that they've chosen to situate it amongst cotton factories because obviously women and children, indeed, would be very much part of that workforce. So it's very interesting to choose the cotton industry because there was more equality in that industry, men and women working alongside one another and whole families bringing in money rather than other industries, say, for example, the mining. And so choosing to reinterpret the cotton industries in those kind of stereotypical ways. I mean, for God's sake, Martha is blonde, <laughs> so she's trouble, right? You know, if anybody's going to have a child out of wedlock, it's going to be that blonde woman who <laughs> men just cannot keep their hands off, right? Uh, and, and yet if we, if we look at Suter's own life, the guy who was the historian for the series hints that Suter may have had a child out of wedlock in Darwin, which Mm -hmm. might be why he's quite so keen to move to Blackburn as the child is born. So he's not quite the noble figure within the context of the series, maybe, that we think. And the particularly spiteful thing, I think, for your listeners to look at is the characterisation of Kinnaird's wife, Mary Alma, more often known as Alma, who in the early scenes is pretty chippy. You know, she's having a go at him over dinner, 
And she's saying, oh, Arthur, why do you have to play football? Shouldn't you become mature and start to be a father? Well, in real life, he already was a father. They'd got a daughter mm-hmm. and they would have a son in the time frame that this series covers. And so to have her be chippy about his football and then miscarry seems to me to be such an invention of spitefulness on behalf of the writers mm. Mm. that she actually only matures across the series when she stops talking to him about his football and lets him go and do that. And that's what I said on the previous conversation with Brenda is that, that men in this series are concerned with their virility Women are concerned with their fertility, and it's not very subtle characterization. Gene, I wanted to go back a little bit about the kind of class romance that happens between Fergie and Arthur Kennard. So for me watching it, it seemed like uh, Kennard comes off as this, you know, true gentleman that really embodies all of this spirit. And the way I remember him is as president of FA banning women from playing. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I don't, I I was sort of taken aback by the portrayal of him as this sort of friend of the working man. And I wanted to (laughs) ask you, and certainly not a friend of working women who wanted to play football, but I just wanted to ask you what you thought about that, like portraying him in that light. So for me, again, this series, I think this series wants to be chariots of fire. It's resplendent. It adores nostalgia. So this is really about the loss of innocence of poor old Arthur Kinnaird. Never mind that he's a banker, Mm -hmm. um, that he's Eton and Cambridge educated. The poor man gets distracted from his football by his wife having a miscarriage. And uh, we see his journey because inevitably he's got to have a journey across six parts. And his journey is that he becomes a much more compassionate individual. He has compassion for the working man and, and helps them out. And he uses his position to do so. And that's reflected in his football. There's kind of no evidence that whatsoever and as bromances go maybe they are a bit of an odd couple um Kinnaird and Suter the series does everything it can to polarize them mm-hmm. so Kinnaird looks like a Greek god mm-hmm. he's completely beautiful and blonde Suter is short and dark mm-hmm. you know again it's, it's not very subtle characterization and the criticism of the upper classes that it seeks to foreground it actually doesn't do any of that it is nostalgic for those upper classes and what they have lost I actually wonder and I should check this out because this information is available how many on the writing team were women I don't even know and like I'm, I'm not sure because you're right now I'm hearing you speak Jean I knew this would happen, but I really hate that series more than I did when I started. This is why I'm so happy you're on Burn It All Down, because it's exactly the analysis that we desperately need. Bren, did you want to? I guess the last question I just wanted to, I was appalled by, given that they played fast and loose with history, that imperialism is mentioned nowhere. There's not even a gesture to the fact that, you know, anyway, what Britain, Africa, India. Okay. So what I heard was that this was going to become new series about different places in the world that the English game has spread to. 
And I just wanted to ask both of you, I guess, where would you like to see it go next if we were going to see it done right? Well, yeah, I think South America is the place to go. I think that that is the strongest academic literature resisting this narrative that the British invent things and the French, well, the British to some extent diffuse their own sports along the line of their engineers and their scholars and, and, and along the lines of trade and the French internationalise things because I think particularly in, in South America, there are scholars that are saying actually there's an extent to which the English bought these games but certainly didn't want to play against anybody else and certainly mm-hmm. not against the working classes. Mm-hmm. And so therefore that haughtiness, that isolation that characterises British football right until we go into the First World Cup actually in 1950 gives other countries a huge opportunity to invent their own versions of the game. So the extent to which one set of rules internationalised football is I think highly dubious as a thesis. Bren, my thoughts on the whole imperialist, you know, history of football is really interesting because nowhere did the when it gave an a sort of epilogue write up, it didn't talk about the effects of colonization. Because during this time, Brenda and I had chatted about this before, Jean, that while this series was depicted as happening, Britain was in its heyday of colonialism all over the world. And there's no sort of mention of that and how football was spread through the world. Do you know what I mean? And how it became the global game. It's still only referencing football in an English spotlight. And I think that's really, it's bizarre on many levels. And like you said, it's sort of this erasure of the continued history of what football actually was. So this wasn't really about football. This was really about like a romantic story that these particular filmmakers wanted to tell. And as someone who sort of takes in football and analyzes it in a world context, this is it really missed the mark for me. The shots went way wide. Bren. <laughs> Do I want to see it? I mean, I want to see someone else write it for South America, <laughs> but I would love it. I would obviously. And I think Jean makes a wonderful point, which is there's a lot to lean on in terms of the literature that's out there about the very early days, 1870s, 1880s. I've written about Chile, but there's dozens of other people who have done this. So I 100% agree I think it would be fabulous as long as they admit that women were playing right from the start. Just to go back on that, I think there were some women involved in the production. Don't recognize the names. So, yeah. And again, we don't want it to be a tale of the upper and lower classes because we know, if I could put it, the psychic ownership of football has always been with the people. And so the idea of upper classes gifting it to them you know, a little bit like the Easter Bunny, since we're recording this on Easter Friday, is a complete nonsense. And I also didn't like the language. That's the other thing, just to link in with imperialism. The language and the way that they spoke about the game, although the Scots were known for more of a passing game, it was man-to-man passing. It wasn't space ball player in the kind of way that it was spoken about in the series. So much more to link in with Brenda's and your point, Shireen, about imperialism and, and invasion. Actually, they could have done quite a lot more about it as an invasion game. But mm. the language and the way that football was spoken about wasn't entirely accurate from the series. Amazing. Jean, you are welcome anytime on Burn It All Down. This conversation was amazing. And I think it's so important. <laughs> yeah. 
Thank you so much. And if you ever want to come on and trounce the way men depict football, you are always welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very much, Shireen and Brenda. All right. Well, after all that bashing, people going through ridiculous links to get sports back, (laughs) we're now going to talk about the WNBA, which is pretending that things might go on as planned this summer and holding the WNBA draft on Friday, April 17th, I believe, on ESPN. Amira, what's going on? How are they doing this? Well, we'll see how we're doing this. (laughs) So. Yeah, the WNBA is holding their draft on Friday, April 17th. If you remember, they were initially going to air this on ESPN2, and everybody was like, uh, like, sorry, your rerun of some obscure thing <laughs> is more pressing than like an actual live draft. And so they they realized that that was dumb. And now it will be airing on ESPN on Friday, April 17th at 7 p.m. Eastern. It's going to be interesting to see how they do this. The plan is to hold the virtual draft with, quote, <laughs> this is my favorite thing. When Commissioner Kathy Engelbert like, made the statement about how they were going to do it, the literal quote was like, I'll be, quote, somewhere in New Jersey announcing <laughs> the draft picks live. <laughs> and then the plan is to let draftees either pop in or virtually kind of go to them with their families for, you know, their moments still. And so it will be very interesting to see how this unfolds. Again, there's a lot of questions here. We don't know if there's going to be a season, right? We might be drafting people who aren't going to step on a court until 2021. Hmm. We don't know much about a lot of things that have to do with this. And this is a big draft. Not only is it stacked, but this is going to be the first year that they're playing under the new CBA. And there's a lot of talent here. So almost the only thing that we do know what to expect is that Sabrina is going to be the top pick and that she's going to the New York Liberty. That is pretty much we can lock in as a definite. And after that, we're just, it will be an adventure for all of us. But we do have some really exciting prospective draftees in the draft. And I would love to chat with you guys who you're watching, what you're watching for, and some of the thoughts about what this draft could mean moving forward for the league. Jess? Yeah. So as Amira just said, Inyasku, she'll go first. But I'm really interested in her teammate, Satu Sabali. She's an athletic forward who was only a junior this year, and she left school early to go into the W. She'll most likely follow Sabrina. She'll go second overall, drafted by the Dallas Wings. So Sabali is amazing. She's 6'4", and this last year she averaged 16.2 points and 6.9 rebounds per game. She hit 45 three-pointers during the season, and during her time at Oregon, she shot 39% from the three-point line. This last season, she had 2.3 assists per game, so she's like a hell of a player. I feel almost... Everyone's using the word versatile, and that's super true, but it almost feels like it undersells her in some way. And so if she goes as projected to the wings, she'd be a great addition there alongside Enrique Ugumbwale. The idea of the two of them running the court together is such an exciting one. And the wings, they'll be looking for some offense after losing their longtime point guard, Skylar Diggins-Smith. She's now with Phoenix. And they'll no longer have Glory Johnson, Azra Stevens, or Amani McGee-Stafford. You know, the wings are interesting. Like, they'll still have Alicia Gray, Kayla Thornton, Arike, Isabel Harrison, Kayla Davis. All of those people started at least 16 games last season. But Dallas, going into this draft, they actually have the number two pick, 
the number five, the number seven, and number nine, all in the first round. And then they actually have two picks in the second round at 15 and 21. And so the CEO of the Wings, his name is Greg Bibb, he talked to Michelle Vopel over at ESPN, and he said, quote, it is a reset for us. We're going to be young. There will be some growing pains. But as we told our players, the opportunity to create the culture and set the legacy is in their hands. And it does, to me, feel like they have a real chance here with this draft to do that. And it's really interesting and fun to think of the idea of Sabali being their new long-term anchor on this team alongside Arike. I completely agree. I'm having so much fun thinking about all these different players and just seeing where they land. It seems pretty likely that the first three picks will be Sabrina to the Liberty, Satu to the Dallas Wings, and then Lauren Cox to the Indiana Fever. But there's a lot of question marks after that. And like, where is Tyesha Harris going to land? UConn, you know, Megan Walker and Crystal Dangerfield. Bella Allery from Princeton, who obviously, because she was in Princeton, didn't get as much national attention, but is people mm. are saying she could be like the John Quell Jones like steal of this draft. I mean, oh, wow. You know, she, like recruiters are just so high on her. Kia Gillespie is another player who I've loved watching at Florida State. She could be in the first round. Beatrice, mom premier, who was at Miami and didn't have as good of a senior season, but her junior season was so good. So there's just so many fun players like I'm looking up and down to see personally because I covered Maryland a lot. So I'm really curious where Kyla Charles will land. It seems like she might fall into the second round. Some places even have her falling into the third round, which I think she thinks of herself and as a first rounder. But we'll have to see. Also, you know, could Blair Watson. I think she could sneak into the draft for Maryland just for everyone in case you guys haven't been paying attention to the news because there's so much else going on, the players who decided to stay in school for their senior year who could have gone were Ari McDonald from Arizona and Arella Garantes from at Rutgers. So they did not declare. And then Destiny Slocum also decided not to declare for the draft, but she did enter the transfer portal to leave Oregon State, which was a surprise because she already left Maryland after her freshman year. But one of the players who did declare is one of my favorites, Amira. You want to talk about my favorite? Yeah, so <laughs> Kennedy Carter from Texas A&M. I'm very excited. I've been able to watch Kennedy play since she was really a middle schooler and high schooler because she's a Texas girl who played with my cousin and they were both at McDonald's All-American together and whatever. So we've had like kind of years of watching Kennedy play. You might remember Kennedy for her emphatic game-winning shot a few years ago. That really, I think, is her style. She's such a, this is another use of the term flamethrower. She has a quick shot and she takes a lot of them. <laughs> and she has had <laughs> such a standout career at Texas A&M, really put the program on her back. She averaged over 20 points. She was the first player in program history to get all of these SEC accolades, All-American accolades. One of the most ridiculous stats about her really illustrates how she rises to the moments in big games. She's averaged over 30 points per game in her first six NCAA tournament games, which was third all time, wow. um, which I think illustrates the fact that like this is a girl where you put the ball in her hands, you tell her to go shoot and go score, and she'll be all over the court heaving up shots. It's not terribly efficient, right? So uh, <laughs> she she averages these big numbers. She takes 45 plus attempts. 
But I think that it's really great because her game is so, like, she can develop. She has so much growth ahead of her. And she's somebody with the skill level already to come off the bench in the projected place of, say, if she goes to the dream, coming off the bench as a sixth person who comes in there and really can get hot and get you a lot of points. And I think that's a really great position for her to be in as she enters the league and can continue to develop her game, especially for the first time really in her career, if she doesn't have to carry the team, if she doesn't have to be checking up all of these shots, if she doesn't have to be putting everybody on her back, it really opens up a lot of opportunity for her to develop as a defender, as a passer, and I can't wait to see where she lands and what's next for her. Same. Shereen, who do you have your eyes on? I bet I can guess. Well, of course, knowing (laughs) that I stan UConn the way that I do, I just wanted to sort of say that I think that this is Megan Walker is someone from the UConn class who's actually forgone. She's decided to forgo her senior year of eligibility her last year at UConn, and she's the first player in the program to leave after only three seasons. Only two that I know that left UConn with eligibility, because I don't know why anyone would ever leave, is Azra Stevens, who we did have on the show before, and Morgan Tuck. And Morgan left in 2016, and Azra is 2018. And it's just really interesting for me to see this. I don't know where... Megal will actually, Megan Walker, who's a junior forward, will land within the class, but it'll be really interesting to see that. I mean, I'll be wearing a New York Liberty jersey on April 17th just to support the online draft. It'll be really interesting for me to see because a lot of UConn players have actually ended up together. So, I mean, there's a whole whack of them at Chicago Sky, which is fabulous, but it's just really interesting to see. And I'm, I'm very obsessed with the culture at UConn and to see what happens, although there's all this other interesting stuff happening. For people like me that are almost not limited but just a bit focused on one particular college program it's just it's really interesting to see how the rest gets into the melange about this totally Bren. well when i was going through just various articles on the draft and predictions and things like that i was really struck by how many oregon had and i just wanted to ask those of you who are a little bit more knowledgeable about this what are some of the programs that are producing this like how has that happened over the last few Mm. years that you just see this explosion? That's a great question. I think the great thing about women's college basketball and the way it's developed is the Pac-12 being so, so strong. The Big Ten has gotten better. I mean, I really do think that Maryland has helped bring up the level of the entire Big Ten. And a lot of coaches have talked about that because Maryland used to be in the ACC. And then, I mean, it's just, it's all over. I mean, there's not one place. It's no longer a draft full of just UConn players. You can get these draft picks. I mean, they're all over the board. Amira? Yeah, no, I I think that you hit the nail on the head there. I mean, we know that traditional powerhouses like UConn and back in the day, it was really Tennessee heavy as well, were going to be... A, getting really top recruits because of the storied kind of history of those programs. And then also because of their dominance, we're going to be more represented in the draft. But what we've seen is immense amount of parity that has really always existed in women's college ball, but now has been very visible, right? And so you get the Gamecocks, you get Oregon. And like Lindsay said, I think one of the biggest developments has been conference by conference. So the Pac-12 being strong has influenced all of the teams in the Pac-12. The Big Ten being strong has made meant Rutgers needs to go recruit harder and get better. It means all of these ripple effects from that. And I think that we're starting to see that each year. Um, that parity is also coming to the draft more often than not. And so coming off big years, 
certainly like organized, you're going to see them represented. But I think like generally the depth of the draft points to just the growth of the game. So exciting, Jess. <laughs> yeah, and I think all that is spot on. I also think, and I feel like I've mentioned this on the show before, I think it matters that the W has so much more attention on it. Mm-hmm. So the idea used to be like, college ball for women was the end goal. Even though the W existed, all the attention was on college ball and playing for Connecticut or playing Mm -hmm. for Tennessee or one of these storied places. But now there's like another level. So you can go to Oregon and have a career there and then imagine yourself in the W and having an amazing career post-college in a way that just even five, seven years ago, that just wasn't how we thought about women's ball. So I think the W itself growing in the way that it has has also pushed players into other programs that they wouldn't necessarily have gone to before. Amira, did you? Oh, no. And I think I guess that last point is the last question I'll pose to you. With this being on ESPN and not much else going on, and because of the new kind of chapter that the W is going into, do you think that this moves the needle? What are your kind of predictions about coverage about the reaction to the draft is the virtualness of it going to be a shit show or is it going to actually be something that might work for the league i mean i think yes and yes i'm personally very excited for all the at-home styling we're gonna see from all these players because i think there's gonna be some fashion do's and don'ts and i always love the fashion but i think yeah i think that there's something's gonna go wrong they're gonna be technical glitches but that overall a bunch of more people will pay attention than probably would have if this was in the midst of you know getting ready for the nba playoffs etc but i also really don't have a lot of hope that there's gonna be WNBA season so i'm kind of torn a little bit on this shereen well i just sort of wanted to add i mean we're talking about the draft and we're talking about the draft being live which i think was a huge step but i also think there's a lot to do if we look at it with sabrina Iniescu and the excitement and the hype around her. I think the W is going in a direction where it's capitalizing where it should. And I think that's really important. And all the hype about her, especially in the aftermath of the loss of Kobe Bryant and how he bigged her up. He was her hype man, essentially, and how she's drawing a lot of attention. And when I interviewed Kia Nurse a couple of weeks ago, it was one of the questions that I asked her, Lindsay, you wanted me to ask her that question. And I did about what does it mean? And she was, Kia was great. She's like, she is bringing a new future, Right to the game and a lot of attention to it, which is really, really important. Like one of the things so important to see is with these players. And as Amira just stated, like the excitement about the CBA and about the future that the WNBA can now hold for people and for players in a legitimate way to make it sustainable for them is living. And that's really important. And I don't, I agree with you, Lens. I don't know if the season will actually happen, and I'm really sad about that. But to try to keep the momentum is a really, really smart move on part of the W. Like, I will be wearing my jersey, and I encourage all listeners out there and fans to wear your jersey on April 17th, and we'll do a thread. It'll be great just to let them know that we're still out there supporting them, and we see them, whether or not they'll touch the court this year, we don't know. All right, it is time for everyone's favorite segment, the burn pile. Brenda, do you want to get us started? Sure. This week, after 23 years of substantive journalism, Sports Illustrator or Sports Illustrated, excuse me, fired writer and friend of this show, Grant Wall. Hmm. They fired him without notice or severance. And I think it's important to state that Grant was a pioneer in covering women's soccer. Very inspirational for many of us that loved women's soccer. He, 20 years ago, was doing really in-depth interviews. He was 
getting to all the games, working with coaches in terms of getting better access to players and giving them a spotlight. He also covered basketball and a lot more. And over the years, he opened spaces for women who played internationally, like Melissa Ortiz, who was on the Colombian national team and fighting and struggling against her federation. Beyond this disrespectful termination, Sports Illustrated went further and published an aggressive and offensive letter, which basically published, you know, made known Grant's salary, claimed he wrote infrequently, and implied that his work lacked gravitas. This is patently sexist. <laughs> this is a patently sexist. This is, it's not coincidental that this is the marquee writer on women's soccer for their magazine. Right. I mean, to say what he's writing isn't important is a feminist issue. Then they claimed that he refused to take a 30 percent pay cut going forward. The union tweeted a letter in solidarity with Grant. I want to burn the decision to terminate Grant Wall, who had written eloquently on women athletes for over two decades. I want to burn the fact that they attempted to squelch public outcry by positioning Grant as pampered. Look for these techniques from rapacious capitalists across the board in every industry. (laughs) Amen. These are people that will break solidarity among workers with personal attacks, trying to pose some writers as elite. And basically, don't be fooled. All that does is, is try to diffuse claims that are very real about ongoing cuts Essential workers in journalism rooms are writers. Mm -hmm. Those are essential to the process of journalism. (laughs) There are some people who will make more and there are some people who will make less. But this is a technique that will be used again and again and again going forward. So I want to burn Sports Illustrated's termination of Grant and the way in which they did it, which is an attack on all workers. Burn. 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 We stand with you, Grant. Jess. Okay, so we talked about this a little bit at the top of the show, but just in case you haven't been on social media, you might have missed the COVID meme where you get groups of different people and you choose which group you'd be most willing to be isolated with. So, for example, there was one where the Tennis Channel did it with only tennis players. Or, of course, you're all invited to quarantine at the Burn It All Down house. Um, (laughs) Well, ESPN did their version of this, and they posted it on Monday evening last week. The phrase house one, because all the athletes were divided into houses, the phrase house one was trending because so many people were responding to this meme. House one had LeBron, Alex Achevkin, Mike Trout, Serena Williams, Tiger Woods. You can understand people's interest in it. The way the tweet went out, though, in the preview image before you clicked on the whole thing, you could only see the people in house one and house four. It looked innocuous, basically. After I saw it go past on my Twitter timeline, roughly... I don't know, a hundred times, I finally clicked through to read all the houses and I was instantly angry. Like I'm mad just even talking about this right now. House five had the amazing Sue Bird. I don't know why they did this to her, but it had the amazing Sue Bird, then Tom Brady and Steph Curry, followed by, I shit you not, Floyd Mayweather and Cristiano Ronaldo. House six included Conor McGregor. Mayweather has a long history of domestic abuse for which he has both pleaded guilty multiple times and been convicted. Cristiano Ronaldo, as we've talked about repeatedly on this show, I'm going to point you to episodes 74, 75, and 76 in particular, if you'd like to know more. And Conor McGregor, who Shireen metaphorically burned on episode 98, 
Both have been reported more than once for violence against women. McGregor is also an Islamophobe and racist. Perhaps in the avalanche of news, you've missed that one of the crises around the world right now is around domestic violence, specifically because people are trapped in their homes with their abusers during an incredibly stressful time. According to a New York Times piece that came out earlier on the same day that ESPN posted their fun little choose if you'll isolate with an abuser tweet, quote, as quarantines take effect around the world, intimate terrorism, a term many experts prefer to domestic violence, is flourishing. The United Nations has called on countries around the world to actively deal with the related public health crisis of domestic violence. There is evidence worldwide of calls to domestic violence helplines increasing exponentially. Put in any city name, the phrase domestic violence and coronavirus into Google, and you will come up with a recent article about this. This is a problem everywhere. This is also a public health crisis ongoing right now. And this is yet another reminder of who is forgotten in these moments, especially within the sports world, and who is forgiven and glorified. I don't know how many people participate in making this image over at ESPN or deciding to put it up on their Twitter account, but it's disgusting on so many levels. Everyone involved should be deeply ashamed. Burn. Burn. Amira? Yeah, so I want to go back to, you know, what Lindsay was saying about college football coaches in particular. I want to talk about Mike Gundy, a football coach at Oklahoma State. He made a statement earlier this week where he said the NCAA, presidents of universities, Power Five conference commissioners, and athletic directors need to be meeting right now and coming up with answers. He went on to say that they need to bring players back. He goes, they're 18, 19, 20 years old. They're healthy. They have the ability to fight this virus off. That's true. We need to sequester them and we need to start playing because we need to continue to run money through the state of Oklahoma. He's since put out a statement that I won't even dignify by calling it apology. It was just word salad where he said, I know that some people were offended and I apologize if they were offended and all that kind of familiar bullshit. And we've already seen some parents of players on the team rush to defend him, even while they say that, no, they would not like their specific 19-year-old to be fodder for this. And that's really what Gundy's really doing is saying the quiet part out loud. He's Mm -hmm. basically just pointing to the fact that the system is built on the backs of unpaid labor by student athletes. These 18, 19, 20-year-olds are not your disposable fodder. They're not Mm -hmm. just because they're fit, just because they're young. It doesn't mean they get to go be your shield to bring sports back and run money through your state. Although I get why you think they are. The whole system has taught you that. They bruise their brains. They shortchange their education. They gladiate themselves for your amusement and profit. Of course you think they're disposable workhorses. That's how you treat them without a national, a global pandemic. And I get it. Look, I live in a college town whose economy is so wound up in its football team. We're a town where that gets nearly $1.4 million to local businesses just on its spring blue and white weekend alone. When they're playing themselves, it's an open mm-hmm. practice. That's canceled. It's gone. And that, along with graduation, means businesses here in my town are already closing. One restaurant Mm -hmm. owner who had to close permanently said he was just trying to hold on to see if they had blue and white because that could have sustained him until the fall and the students come back. So I get Mm -hmm. it. But this impact just reveals the full extent of what is born on the back of these kids, mostly black and brown, all unpaid. The profits and the impact go beyond the schools themselves or the media who covers the games, right? And while we can support local places feeling the pain of this, the solution is not to rebuild and replicate the same system that make men like Gundy openly say that 18 and 19 year olds are disposable and need to get back to work to save the school, the town, the state, the coaches, make the coaches money, administrators and everybody else rich but themselves. Everybody is nodding silently in agreement because he said what everybody is thinking within this system. 
But it's not enough to replicate and save it. COVID is not a sign to rebuild it in the same way. It's clearly a clarion call to burn that system the fuck down. So burn. 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 Whew, I don't know how to follow that, but I'll follow it up with more incidents of racism because that's how sports works. This time I'm talking about Cam Newton, who, if you listen to this podcast, you know how much I love Cam Newton. He's, of course, in free agency right now and has not signed with a team. But that doesn't mean that people aren't still talking about him. So in CBS Sports Network this week, Adam Shine in a segment called Time to Shine said this. (laughs) Matt Rule, who is Carolina's new coach, did exactly what we said he was going to do in Carolina. Matt Rule is all about ball all the time. And Cam Newton, well, he's about Instagram and what scarf he's going to wear after a certain ball game and a certain defeat. Cam Newton has had a deal with these racist and, might I add, glam-shaming attacks for his entire career. It is completely bullshit for any single entity to imply that Cam Newton does not care about football, does not work his ass off, and is not a great teammate and a great leader. There's just no evidence of it. There's just no evidence of it. The attacks against him have always been rooted in racism and often just outright plain racist. And I am very excited that The Ringer with the great Tyler Tynes is doing a documentary series delving deep into Cam Newton. Tyler's one of the greatest writers about race and sports that we have. And I know that he will actually give the subject the deep dive that it so desperately deserves. But I just can't believe that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and people are still playing the (laughs) Cam Newton doesn't care about football. He's not a football guy card. Burn. Burn. Shireen, finish us up. What I'm burning is actually adjacent to sport, but important nonetheless, and just a trigger warning for brutal colonialism. A friend of the show and a former guest, Rim Sarah Alouan, who is a French academic, tweeted something that went wildly viral for the wrong reasons was because there was two French doctors, one Professor Jean-Paul Mira, who's head of intensive care at Cochin Hospital in Paris. And he was speaking online with Professor Camille Lorte, who's a research director at INSERM, said, we're talking about vaccines for COVID-19. And they both said that, and Professor Jean-Paul Mira said, if I can be proactive, shouldn't we do the study in Africa where there are no masks, no treatment, no resuscitation? And to which Camille Locht replied, you are right, we are currently thinking in parallel about a study to make sure the same type of approach with BCG. Now, just so you know, BCG is a vaccine treatment that's used for tuberculosis. So they're talking about using people in the continent of Africa to test out. Now, for those of you who are already aware, the stats are in the United States that the incidences of risk for Black communities is significantly higher. Lack of access to everything from tests to treatment to PPE equipment to everything. This is unacceptable. Now, what ended up happening in the part where sport plays in is that two of my favorite footballers, one is Didier Drogba from the Cote d'Ivoire, he replied, and so did Samuel Ito of Cameroon, retired footballers now, but very, very angry. And I mean, Didier Drogba was very, we call him the king. He just replied very succinctly that this is absolutely unacceptable. This is not a way to do, it's inconceivable that they can do this. And Africa is in a testing lab. And then to which Samuel Ito very, very eloquently said, 
que de la merde, or you are shit, which I think is very appropriate mm. in a response to these. Now, just for all the athletes out there that are, are talking about staying safe and doing wonderful work, I want to recognize the racialized athletes out there who, in addition to doing this with everyone else in solidarity, are constantly fighting this type of anti-blackness and racism. It is unacceptable and it was, it's so upsetting on so many fronts. I want to take those attitudes, that anti-blackness, that brutal colonialism, and I want to burn it all down. Burn. Burn. After all that burning and what I think is one of the more powerful burn piles we've ever done, turns out our burns, they don't need sports to be happening to be powerful. There's enough going on (laughs) to keep us. But let's lift off some of the bad asses of this week. I want to first give a shout out. There are a lot of female athletes who work multiple jobs, as we know, and a lot of them are right now working their jobs on the front lines of the coronavirus pandemic. Specifically, want to shout out some I read about this week. Soccer players Rosie McDonald of Portsmouth and uh, Haley West of London Bees, as well as Wales rugby players Abby Fleming, Paige Randall, Megan Webb, and Angara Desmet, who are all working as either nurses or nurses assistants or nurse techs in hospitals helping those with coronavirus. So we are so grateful. Florence Schelling, who was just named the general manager of SC Bern of the National League in Switzerland. At 31, she is the first female GM in top-level men's professional hockey. So that's super exciting. UCLA softball, which was the unanimous choice as the number one team in the country in the final ESPN and USA softball top 25 poll released this week. Of course, it was a shortened season, but that number one is still something to celebrate. And can I get a drum roll, please? All right. Our badass of the week is Nikki McCray Penson, who was hired to replace Vic Schaefer as the women's basketball coach at Mississippi State. McCray Penson was a standout player at Tennessee under Pat Summit and went on to win two gold medals, Team USA, and play in the ABL and WNBA. She was a longtime assistant coach for Don Staley at South Carolina and then spent the past three seasons as the head coach at Old Dominion, where she was Conference USA Coach of the Year this past season. In the SEC right now, Southeastern Conference of Women's Basketball, six of the 14 head coaches are black women. 10 of the 14 are women, period. These are numbers that every single conference should be striving for. So that is amazing. Congratulations, Nikki. All right. Can we find any good in this this, uh, world right now? Who wants to get us started? Brenda? It's so funny you would ask me. I'm always like, I'm always the most reticent on the what's good, but I love it so much. All right, this is what I can tell you. I'm happy to report that my oldest daughter, Maya, is officially taller than me. This has caused no small amount of joy in our household. For those of you that don't know me personally, my stature is not overwhelming. Uh, so not to say she's the next WNBA draft pick, but to say, A, I'm very happy for her because she did want to be taller, as many people do, and B, very happy for me because I need people to reach cupboards. Other thing <laughs> is that I am happy that my students actually want Zoom classes. I really don't. 
and I'm exhausted and I'm teaching mm. four of them. So that would be complete hell if it wasn't for the fact that my students have been absolutely rock solid and consistent in terms of showing up even when they can't get their work done, even when they can't concentrate. They want to keep going. It gives them a sense of purpose. So those that are able to have had just the best attitude. And then the last thing I want to say about what's good in the world, I would like to share with fellow global football maven Shreen, which is uh, <laughs> earlier today, we are recording <laughs> a, a historic moment, Sunday, April 12th, 2020. It was announced that star Neymar has now had <laughs> a new stepfather. That stepfather is 22-year-old TikToker. And... <laughs> <laughs> When I when I first <laughs> when I first saw the photo of Neymar posting with his stepfather, I thought that Neymar had come out, and I did too. I was I was so like blown away. I was like, we are going to have a year. Yeah. And then as I read down, I realized, no, this is his mother's new partner. So congratulations to both Neymar and his mother for this new family member. And please do check out his TikTok, which Aaron West has featured on his <laughs> Twitter feed. Because if you need a good laugh at some real mediocre dancing, it's there for you. Shireen, maybe you want to take that up. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> he's he's literally uh, the tongue sticking out, the cross dangly earring. It's I mean, <laughs> how is he even Brazilian? All right, okay. Uh, Jess, yeah. So um, this week I finished my book edits, which was a big deal. It was really hard for me to get through it. Yeah. Um, I just didn't. It's hard to focus right now. So reading the book again to do edits again felt like a real thing but like we're done with the edits now so I think we're just aiming for September 1st to actually have the book come out I wanted to let everyone know in case you didn't hear that the Doubletree posted their cookie recipe oh online. my god really so like what go find that because those are magical cookies those are magical cookies they're so. so great and so I don't have all the ingredients <laughs> in my house so my goal this week is to get them but I don't need them right now because my son and I yesterday finished decorating a three-tier chocolate cake that we made this week. So we have this giant cake that the three of us will now make our way through during quarantine. And then last week, I mentioned that Jake Gyllenhaal did the handstand challenge without a shirt on, and that was wonderful. Um, this week, I want to point you to Simone Biles' Instagram account. This oh, woman... Yes does the handstand challenge except of course she ups it she's wearing a pair of sweatpants and she takes them off while in a handstand <laughs> so that was what was good for me it's ridiculous amira jets can you just like send me the cookies you make yeah, yeah. i was thinking that sure too. <laughs> okay i'm holding you to that okay thanks uh, <laughs> my good oh so trolls world tour came out on friday and this was supposed to be in the theater so they did this like it's available on demand, but they let you rent it for $20, which was egregious. But also my kids had been like waiting for it. So I like gave in because it was less than I would spend at a movie theater, I guess. Anyways, 
I was like not going to pay attention to this movie and I really enjoyed it actually. The soundtrack is really great and they actually have this whole kind of through line about appropriation, particularly like you can read the kind of racial overtones, the appropriation of other forms of music by like pop trolls and I really like that. I also love the K-pop trolls and the reggaeton trolls. Like they have real groups so like Red Velvet voiced it and J Balvin. So like it was fun. We had fun doing it. I also did a lot of house parties. My like quarantine house party people of the week that I wanted to shout out were my college friends. We had a really good time reminiscing about college. And then also Insecure is back tonight. Mm. Um, and I'm really excited to it's one of the only shows I watch live, like real time, because Black Twitter is so funny when that show is on. <laughs> um, and it used to be like the Sunday thing is you would collectively watch Game of Thrones with everybody on Twitter. And then like Black Twitter would siphon off and collectively watch Insecure. So I'm really excited tonight to have that kind of communal experience again. That sounds amazing. I am currently getting joy out of my family is trying to have a... <laughs> Uh, Easter, my extended family, uh, Easter Zoom right now. They didn't let me know in time, so we were already recording. But my text, the text message change is currently, we are now going to try Chip's laptop. Okay, we can't hear you, mom. Your dad is trying. Why don't you try joining on your phone? <laughs> trying on my laptop. So the text messages of everyone in my family trying to figure out Zoom is what's bringing me joy right now. <laughs> They're like they were supposed to start this 30 minutes ago. And they're still texting. Like nobody can figure you out. You won't Zoom, be late. So. You'll be right on time. I'm, uh, I'm very glad I am not there because you all know I would have lost it a long time ago. Yeah. So this is this is good for everyone. I also I figured out how to make a mask. So I have not I cannot sew and I did not have any masks. And so I had been kind of avoiding that whole thing. Because, like, you can't order and it takes weeks to get any delivered and it's just a mess. But they did have a very easy one, the CDC, where you, like, cut – basically just cut a T-shirt and it becomes a mask. So I have mm-hmm. the ugliest mask. It's just, like, from a white T-shirt. But it, it worked. And so I could go groceries because you can't go grocery shopping anymore without a mask. Hmm. So I was allowed to go grocery shopping. So that was joyous. And on Tuesday, I have to go pick up a prescription, which means I'm going to get to go to CBS. So I'm very excited for that outing. <laughs> that's pretty much all that's good in my life right now. It's been a rough week. Um, Shereen? Yeah, I just uh, thank you, Brenda, for lightening my life with Neymar's junior stepfather. I'm never going to get over that. I also have been practicing my British accent, as my Brennan All Down family knows. Not very unsuccessfully, but I just want to say that I haven't seen my kids in two weeks because I've been at their dad's and now they get home tonight. It's been, I can't believe I made it. It's two weeks is a very long time. And I did it. I did a lot of continued fashion shows. I'm upping my game. I did one in the grocery store, one with my cat last night. She's still not speaking with me. And just sort of trying to enjoy. So I got a bike last week, which is a really big deal. I bought a bicycle because even walking was getting me a little anxious. So the bike paths are pretty clear around where I live. And I did get face masks for me and my kids. I got them from, and shout out to the hijab and sports turban company, Thauria in Ottawa, Canada, and Tassada Abud, because as soon as she put that up, they make sports hijabs and they use newcomer and refugee women to do their work and they pay them fairly. Oh. So they take the scrap leftovers of what their pieces are and they 
they turn them into masks. Mm-hmm. And so they're the micro, what's the word, micro something material. They're washable, they're reusable, and I got mine. So I'm feeling a lot better. I don't go out very often, but if I have to, that's what that is. I'm also a little trigger happy with the online shopping, and I don't know why, because it's not like I'm ever going to wear pants again in my life. <laughs> so, and I, I like, I just don't think it's going to happen, like pants with a zipper. And I bought a, I got bras, like sports bras, because like, I mean, on special days where I feel like the girls need to be held up, I'm going to get a sports bra. So that's where I am at this point. And uh, just very grateful and thinking about and getting back to what quickly I said about my kids, just for all those people that are in that situation, Mm -hmm. single parents or caregivers, and you don't get to be with your family. I feel you. I hear you. I see you. Reach out. Or if you just want to send an email to burn it all down, I'd be happy to send you back some burn it like Beckham clips. So love to everybody. Thank you all so much for joining us here on Burn It All Down. As you might notice, as our episodes get a little bit longer (laughs) throughout the quarantine, it's because we just need to talk to one another and we just need the company. And I hope you all appreciate it as well. We literally could not do this without you. Once again, patreon.com slash burn it all down. If you want to support us financially, if you just want to support us just in general, you can always share tweet about the show. Burn It Down Pod is our Twitter Facebook, we're at Burn It All Down. You can send us an email, burnitalldownpod at gmail.com. And, you know, we just love hearing from you. Apple podcast reviews are always much appreciated. That really helps this podcast find new ears. We hope above all else that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy and that you are taking care of yourself. Remember, put your face mask on first during these troubling times. And I'll suck you up and I'll spit you out and I'll play.